bags the campus stowed In the overhead lockers must go below in the hold Please let go, thank you sir Welcome to episode 1660 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast with Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. We are doing a preview podcast today, and since we are putting up this episode just after we recorded the last episode, we have no new banter, really, and we have a couple long interviews to get to, so that is perfectly fine. So later in this episode, we will be talking about the Philadelphia Phillies with Matt Gelb of The Athletic, but we are going to start with one of Matt's colleagues, and we are bringing on Alex Coffey, who covers the Oakland Athletics for The Athletic. Alex, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Okay, so with the A's, it always seems to come back to Billy Bean eventually, so maybe we should just start there and get the Billy Bean of it out of the way. So it seemed like the A's came closer to losing Bean than they had in some time. Reportedly, he was trying to pursue other opportunities and maybe came close to being able to do that, but as it is, he is still with the team. So How close do you think he came to leaving, and do you think he still has ambitions to leave, and would that be a big blow to the A's, or are they sort of ready to have the succession plan for being in place if and when they need one? Well, it was close enough that he he didn't want to talk about the prospect of him leaving because there was, I think that there was some like, he wasn't either allowed, he was so deep in talks that he wasn't allowed to talk about it, so I guess like take that, you know, make of that what you will. My interpretation is that it was very close, but it ultimately didn't happen, at least not for 2021. So he'll still be with the A's in 2021. But in regards to the impact that it would have, he kind of, I I wrote a piece on this a couple months ago, but he kind of has set the culture there in a way that it's, from what I can tell, it's kind of working in lockstep with or without him. He he isn't super involved in the day-to-day, I'm sure as, you know, everyone assumes, you know, he's not like, getting involved in minor transactions or signing guys to minor league, like, you know, small, smaller deals. Um, He's more involved in like the above board type stuff from what I can tell. So that's all to say that I don't think it would have a tremendous impact if he did leave just because he's kind of set this culture that's been in place for decades now. But, you know, he is kind of the, the face of the organization. So I think from a maybe more symbolic PR standpoint, it would be a bigger deal. Well, they might be retaining Billy Bean, but one person that the A's will not be having on the field is Marcus Simeon, who left uh, to join the Toronto Blue Jays in free agency. And we'll talk about how they're going to address his absence in a second. But I just am curious from a clubhouse perspective, what the reaction was not only to his departure, but to the team's decision to not even extend a qualifying offer to him. Yeah, well, to put it bluntly, it was not a good, <laughs> the, the team was not happy about it because this is obviously a Bay Area guy that voiced a desire to stay with the A's. You know, his family is in that area. His parents went to Cal. He went to Cal. I mean, 
you can you can keep going on about the connections that he has to the Bay Area, but ultimately what the A's offered him, it was some ridiculous deal. I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was like under the qualifying offer. And I think, let's see, one year, $12.5 million deal with $10 million deferred and 10 one-year ins- installments of $1 million each. Um, <laughs> that wasn't going to do it. <laughs> so... And I don't think it was just the fact that he didn't, you know, he isn't coming back. I think it was also that offer that his teammates took note of. And I was, you know, I was talking to people around the team and what I was hearing was that, you know, they're all watching this. They're all, you know, a lot of these guys are going to hit free agency, you know, around like 2024, 2025, um, if they don't get traded before then, you know, and they're all kind of seeing how the A's handled this, you know, the Marcus Simeon situation and thinking about it relative to their own situations. So so it doesn't just have, you know, a cultural impact on the clubhouse. I think it's also a little bit of an epiphany moment. <laughs> Some of their younger players. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they've read Moneyball or seen Moneyball or, or paid attention to the A's for the last couple of decades, I guess it doesn't come as a huge shock. But what I was saying, but I, I think especially some of the younger guys are kind of looking at things through rose-colored glasses. I know at least I was talking to... Uh, their utility, one of their utility guys, Chad Pinder. And he was saying that, you know, Simeon in terms of like war and like overall value, Simeon was the most talented, most valuable player that had left in free agency in his tenure with the A's. So even though I made the point that this is something that the fan base is used to, his point was that, you know, in terms of like a guy leaving the clubhouse and seeing something, experiencing something firsthand, that it was very new for him. So you know, take it just a different perspective, I guess, to consider, but yeah. And Billy Bean said he was uh, somewhat open about this. He said, we're not unaware of some of the challenges that we have as it relates to the roster. It's something that we've had to deal with in the past. And I think we've always reacted well to it. We've always been somewhat creative and found a way to address some of these things. These free agents are really good players. And he referred to Semyon and Liam Hendricks, and then he said it is going to be tough, but we'll figure something out. So ultimately, I suppose they figured something out, not a one-to-one replacement, but guys like Semyon and Hendricks and Grossman who moved on, the A's didn't do a whole lot to replace them until really the middle of this month. And and then they (laughs) finally (laughs) just uh, buzzer-beating transactions to actually have people to play those positions. So... Do you think that that was always the plan? Just like, let's wait it out and let's see what scraps are left and who can we lowball and who's desperate at the end of this? Or do you think they had things uh, fall apart that they were hoping would materialize? Or how did the offseason develop or not develop the way it did? It's kind of hard to say whether this was a plan or not. I know at least from what they were telling us was that they were very confident in their internal solutions to these these holes that were, they had 10, eight, 10 free agents leave this offseason. They ended up bringing back, I think, two of them. But in December and January, they were saying they were just, the message that was being portrayed was, you know, we have confidence in our, our younger guys and, you know, the guys in AAA to be able to contribute. So at least from an outwards, you know, outward stance, they weren't hinting at anything coming down the line. What I was hearing was that their owner, John Fisher, was not terribly enthusiastic at the prospect of spending his own, you know, his own capital this offseason, you know, towards like following a pandemic year. You know, obviously the team doesn't make their books available to us. So we don't know exactly how much 
revenue they lost, but you have to wonder, you know, a team like the A's that doesn't get a lot of money at the gate because their attendance is super low. You have to wonder how much money in reality they did lose. But, you know, nevertheless, what I heard was that he he really didn't want to spend it all, that they weren't really in the free agent market at all. And that all changed when they um, made a deal with the Texas Rangers, the Chris Davis deal that brought back Elvis Andrews and ended up freeing about $13.5 million for them to go pursue some free agents. But, you know, that isn't necessarily Fisher investing his own capital in the team. It's just, you know, the Rangers sending $13.5 million to the A's and then the A's making a flurry of moves uh you know, in the span of like five days, which has been chaotic from my perspective. But. Yeah, and a, a lot of those moves have come in the bullpen. So we've seen the addition of Sergio Romo and Trevor Rosenthal. We've also seen additional trades that brought in Adam Kalarik. Yasmira Petit has been added to the team. So it seems like part of the strategy here is to is consistent with prior years, right, where they have backed the rotation with what they hope is a very strong bullpen, um, obviously, as you noted, without Liam Hendricks this year. But what is the sort of thought at the moment in terms of how that bullpen is going to be constituted uh, for the 2021 season? Who is sliding into that Liam Hendricks role and how do you think these other guys are going to be deployed? You can kind of coy about it, but it's no, you know, they signed Rosenthal to be the closer. (laughs) So I don't know why there is any coyness, but he's going to be the closer and now it's kind of working backwards. I I think that the roles, the late inning roles are a little bit fluid right now. My guess would be Yusmero Petit kind of moves around like the seventh and eighth inning spots. And then Joaquim Soria's role might be filled by Sergio Romo. But that's just a guess. I mean, they're not committing to any anyone in any specific role. So, but I mean, the the late additions that they've made have worked have really worked in their favor because now some of the younger guys, you know, like Dalton Jeffries, James Caprillion, AJ Puck is a you know looming question mark. How they're going to use him? It kind of frees frees them up to kind of like mix and match a little bit and maybe use them in some lower. <laughs> lower leverage situations. They don't have to just throw them out there and it's like sink or swim, which was what we were all assuming was going to happen before they made these uh, bullpen additions. So they're in a much, much better place now than they were about, you know, 10 to 12 days ago. Guess we might as well ask about Puck while we're on the topic. I suppose the A's haven't actually seen him in a while or seen him pitch. So what do you know about the state of his health or what they're expecting from him? He has reported to camp and they, um, you know, took a look at him in a bullpen session last week and they said that he looks healthy. I'm curious to see how he he looks in game situations because this time last year when he was in camp in spring training, both spring training 1.0 or whatever you want to call it and spring training 2.0, I'm not going to call it summer camp. It's weird. They, you know, it was the same messaging. Like they said that he looked totally healthy and that he was ready to contribute. And then when we inched closer to the regular season opening day was when he got shut down. So I'd I'd say it's still kind of up in the air. But, you know, adding all these arms to the bullpen kind of frees them up to be able to like really watch his workload. Maybe they, I mean, they might even be able to send him, you know, to the minor leagues and then just like maybe pitch him once a week or so and then bring him later in the season to contribute down the stretch. You know, I think that that's a possibility, but they haven't, you know, committed to anything. They they know that they can use him either out of the bullpen or as a starter, six starter maybe. So they've like thrown out all those possibilities, but I think they're still feeling out how uh, 
how they might use him. And that all obviously depends on his health. So what about Jesus Luzardo, who looked really great at times last year? And when he did not look great, he did not look good at all, (laughs) but clearly has a, a lot of stuff and talent and promise. So what are the hopes and expectations for him in 2021? in terms of workload and and also performance. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're they're kind of chalking that up to rookie nerves, the uh, like little bit of inconsistency that we saw, but but you know, they definitely think that he has a lot of potential. I mean, as you mentioned, like when he was good, he was lights out. It was just, you know, he was prone to giving up home runs when he <laughs> when he was not on, so to speak. But Melvin says that he's impressed so far in camp, you know, uh he threw today and I think he threw 30 pitches today and he said his first pitch was 98 which is promising so yeah I mean as far as how he looks lately um they think that he looks good but I I think that the expectation this season is you know that we'll see more of the dominant version of Jesus Luzardo than uh than the alternative and that the reason that he might have struggled was more mental than anything else I guess we can stick with A's who are currently or have recently been injured and what it might mean for their 2021. I want to talk about Matt Chapman, both in terms of the effect that his hip injury had on his 2020 performance, which from his perspective and per his standards was down, and what the current state of him is. I know that the team has said he's going to DH for part of spring training, but is there expectation that he will be fully ready to go and able to maybe regain his prior heights in 2021? Yeah, yeah. As of we we talked to him yesterday and he said that he he's ready to be <laughs> to play defense and be in games right now. The A's are obviously going to be a little bit more cautious. Like you said, they're going to DH him. I think around March 6th or 7th is when the when he might start, you know, getting into games, playing defense, um, playing third base. But he's so as of right now, he's good to go for opening day. Doesn't have any restrictions or they're, they're giving him a little bit of extra, you know, conditioning work to do. But other than that, he he says he feels great, you know, said that the surgery made made a big difference on him. You know, he said it was impacting him both defensively. His hip issues were impacting him both both defensively and at the plate, too. That he relies on his I believe it was his right hip. He like pushes off on his right leg when he's, you know, when he's playing defense, when he's throwing and then, you know, when he's at the plate, too. So it apparently made a big difference for him getting that procedure done. But yeah, as of right now, he's in good shape. So, you know, we'll just have to see how the rest of spring training goes. And there were trade rumors about him and others this offseason, and those didn't materialize into anything or they haven't yet. But what does that say about the state of either the team's finances or the limitations that the baseball operations group is working with now? You know, because the A's are no longer receiving revenue sharing money, right? And so whatever restrictions they were operating under before, I assume, have not loosened in light of that. And then there's the ongoing ballpark question, which if there are updates about that, please let us know too. So are things worse (laughs) than they used to be? And were those trade rumors a sign of things to come? Might there be more players moved? So where is a better place to start? The Howard Terminal terminal stuff or the trade rumors or... Yeah, I guess it's all related. <laughs> it is all related. So the team has said, like, you know, that they're not spending. They've said this on behalf of the owner, that they're not spending until there are, quote, shovels in the ground <laughs> for this waterfront ballpark that they want to build, which is a little bit of an issue because the timeline for the ballpark has been pushed back. Uh, we don't know exactly 
how far pushback it's been pushed back. But as of right now, their latest hurdle is there was a lawsuit filed against the A's in the state and the city of Oakland by a group of stakeholders in the area where they want to build the ballpark. Um, I'm not going to try to get into the minutiae too much, but uh, the Cliff Notes version is that this group is saying that the A's don't have, the governor doesn't have the ability to fast track this environmental impact report that the A's need to put together in order to get this ballpark done within a certain time frame. So this lawsuit is kind of like affecting their timeline right now, pushing everything back, but we don't know exactly how far. So, you know, originally the plan was 2023. I don't even want to guess as far as like when it could get completed, if it does get completed. But what they're saying is that they're not going to spend until until construction starts. So it doesn't look like payroll is going to change anytime soon. Hence the trade talks with Olson and Chapman, who were free agents in 2024. It seems inevitable that they're going to get dealt at some point. I didn't think it was realistic that they would get dealt this offseason just because Chapman is coming off an injury. Olsen is coming off a down year. And then obviously like the shortened season, it's kind of tough to evaluate what impact that had on those two guys. But I I am of the opinion that they're both going to get dealt before they hit free agency. What is the consensus around uh, what led to Matt Olsen's uh, struggles last year? Because if you look at his you know, his stats for the year, it's like he's definitely struck out more, but he also walked more, the BABIP declined. Is he just chalking this up to a bad to a bad and weird 2020? Or was there something more sort of endemic to his profile that you think has shifted or that he might need to address? I think it's a couple of things. He said that the the shortened season definitely didn't help him because he felt, and I, I heard this from a couple of different guys. I don't think this is like an Olsen specific phenomenon, but you know, I think that, you know, the shortened season, he felt a little bit more pressure to break out of break out of his slump. You know, he had less time to figure it out. So, you know, when he wasn't hitting the way that he wanted to, you know, basically what he told me was that he felt like added pressure and that that kind of continued throughout the season. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't think that, like I said, I don't think that that's something that he was he's the only person that was dealing with that. You know, it seems like a lot of guys were dealing with that. So I definitely think part of it was mental. But he also said that, you know, his bat was feeling a little bit, he said flat, horizontal, that it didn't feel like it had in previous years and that he's spent this offseason looking at tape, trying to figure out how to, you know, position himself correctly, trying to like tweak a couple of things to get, you know, instead of like trying to reinvent his swing and his stance, trying to like get back to what has worked for him in the past. So it, it sounds to me like he was maybe thinking a little bit too much when he was at the plate, which probably hurt him, you know, maybe like chasing positions. And that kind of took the timing and feel out of what he was doing at the plate. So so I think it was a combination of factors is my guess. Is there any potential to sign someone to extensions before they get to the point where they become trade candidates? I'm thinking of someone like Sean Murphy, for instance, who had a a great rookie year with the A's. And I know that you just wrote that he actually had an issue with a a collapsed lung. So if that's going to be a a lingering problem, that would be relevant too. But is there anyone like him or or anyone else in that boat who they might try to sign long-term? Or is that just sort of the, the kind of thing that the A's don't do these days. It's hard for me to fathom that, but I've also only been covering the team since November of 2019. So what I've seen is them letting these players, like I wasn't around when they, when they did that, uh, signed KD to that extension, you know, like 
in my era of covering this team, they haven't done that. So, mm-hmm. you know, kind of hard for me to fathom. But yeah, I mean, Sean Murphy would definitely be a candidate. He was like among the most consistent bats last year and obviously the best defensive catcher that they have right now and, you know, showed a lot of power. And uh, the collapsed lung thing I don't think is like... <laughs> Uh, I think it sounds a lot worse than it was. Mm-hmm. You know, it required surgery, so it's definitely serious not to undermine it. But I don't think that that's something that, like, will happen again. <laughs> I'd hope not. But, yeah, I don't – honestly, I don't really know who would be a candidate for that kind of – it's kind of hard for me to imagine them signing anyone to an extension without the ballpark stuff progressing in a significant way. So that I guess that's kind of a non-answer, but that's the answer that I have for you. <laughs> This is less an on-field question and more about sort of the the state that the A's and baseball finds itself in in light of the pandemic. I know that last year, Jake Diekman, who is one of the players in baseball who is considered high risk for the purposes of the pandemic, was critical of sort of the intake process that baseball had. And he, he said that, you know, he's recently said that this year's seemed to be a lot better and that with a year's worth of experience that baseball had sort of figured out its protocols. I'm curious, both from from Diekman, but then just generally, um, what your sense is of how these guys are thinking about going into 2021 as another pandemic season, one that will maybe at some point feature fans in the stands, but is still going to be played under protocol to try to keep everyone safe and healthy, and whether they've adjusted to that as a reality of playing baseball right now, or if there are still um, some kinks in the system that they see as necessary to work out before people can kind of hit the field without worrying about contracting COVID when they do. I think that they've adjusted. They're all very hesitant to say that it's normal because obviously it's not normal, but this is a question that everyone in the Zoom availabilities and stuff that we've been getting every day, all the players and staff have been asked. And the consensus across the board is that they're kind of, you know, used to the routine now. So I think that there is, again, I'm not going to say normalcy, but, you know, I think that they are somewhat used to what's required to put on a season. And I don't think that they're going to have any any problems in that regard. There are a little bit of, you know, there were some hiccups last last year with like the, um, I think it was the, I want to say it was like the COVID-19 test results were delayed or something back in July. I, I reported uh, they were, I think, stuck in an airport somewhere and that the A's had to push back spring training 2.0 but that was um you know that was more of an mlb problem than it was an a's problem so so yeah i think that uh that they're they're as used to it as you can be at this point is there anyone we haven't covered who maybe is not a new face or potentially is but someone who is either coming off a down year or has more in them that uh, we haven't seen so far someone that they're counting on or or hoping can take a step forward to replace some of the players who were lost i'll have to think about that they're really banking on jed lowry (laughs) they signed jed lowry to a minor league deal i think it was a couple weeks ago sorry my concept of time is like non-existent uh, slipping away and i like i know that this i think this is this is his third stint with the team and the way that this minor league signing was covered was like akin to them, like signing him to like, I don't know, like a massive, like I was just like, this is a minor league. I I thought it was like a pretty low risk thing, but the way that they've been talking about him is as if he's like the top candidate for the second base job. They haven't come out and officially said that, but it really does sound like they're, they're counting on him to be, you know, either platoon there or be their starting second baseman, which is something, you know, given his injury history and his age. So 
I guess he's someone to keep an eye on. Again, you know, we don't really know how that's going to play out. I think he's 36 or 37. I don't know off the top of my head. But yeah, so he's someone that um, with the departure of Tommy LaStella is, I guess, they're looking at him to fill that hole. How do the A's see themselves positioned within the division? Because, you know, they had this great year last year and they obviously won the West, but the Astros won't go away. And one of these years, the Angels actually are going to put a 500 uh, win baseball team around Mike Trout and go to the postseason. So how do they see themselves relative to their competition both now and then I suppose after they're able to kind of get the the ball rolling and, and shovels in the dirt, as it were, on the new ballpark? I mean, right now they're saying that they're they're looking to take the division title for the second straight year. So that's what they're telling us. And I, you know, and they were saying this stuff before they made the, these flurry of moves uh, <laughs> in the last couple of days. So I think that, you know, I was a little bit more skeptical when the, bu- the bullpen looked to be more of a liability, but now the bullpen looks to be, you know, a major asset for them. So I think that that's more, it's more realistic for them to win the AL West in, in recent, based on what they've done in recent, the past few days. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that um, winning the AL West is what they're, they're looking to do this season. So the, the goal hasn't really changed there. Okay, well, can we ask you for a prediction? We like to end these segments with uh, a prediction of the team's win total in the coming year. So if we could put you on the spot. Man, I had an age, I was, I did like an anonymous agent survey the other day. And I, one of the agents, he said that um, he thinks that the A's, if the A's win like 90-ish games that they can take the ALS. So I'm going to put, put it in that, that range, maybe like 92, 93. So I guess like low nineties is what I'm going to, what I'm going to guess. And, and I'm also going to guess that that's enough to take the division (laughs) because there has not been a lot of movement in this division. So yeah, we do prep for all of these teams and catch up on their off seasons and what's new and what did they do. And there was less to catch up on in the ace case, let's put it that way, than there is with a lot of teams where it's like, oh, we have to get to this and we have to get to that. With the ace, it's like, well, it's uh, largely the same people except for people who are replacing people who are probably better. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting for sure. You know, you look at it like team by team, like the Angels don't have pitching. The Rangers aren't there yet. In my mind, the Mariners are super young and clearly had massive cultural problems. I don't know how much that's going to affect their on-field product, but not great, you know, and it, I think Houston is probably still their biggest competition for that, but they obviously lost some um, big pieces. So, yeah, I think it's it's still the, um, the A's division to lose at this point. Well, before we let you go, I just wanted to ask you a non-A's question because you wrote a piece last August that got circulated a lot after Hank Aaron's death and you got to talk to him before he passed away, which must have been a thrill because you wrote a piece about the 1955 exhibition team that had Willie Mays and Don Newcomb and Henry Aaron. And it's a a great story that I will share in the show page for people to check out. But tell us a little bit about how you discovered that team, what made you want to work on that story and what it was like to talk to Aaron. So I used to work at the Baseball Hall of Fame. It was my first job out of college, and I was running their social media and writing stories for their website. And I came across this team photo. Um, I think it was like in their Negro Leagues file or something. And, and I'd never seen anything like it before, but it was just totally stacked. I mean, Joe Black, Hank Aaron, like young Hank Aaron, Larry Doby, Ernie Banks, uh, Willie Mays, Roy Campanella, like the best, you know, 
basically the best players that came out of the Negro Leagues all on one one barnstorming team. And I had never heard of the team before. So I started like digging into it a couple of years ago when I was with the Hall of Fame, but I had never really like interviewed any any of the team members about it or I, I hadn't really gotten that far. And then when I transitioned over to journalism and to the athletic, it was last year. And, you know, I think um, the story published when baseball was shut down um, and we were all scrambling for evergreen <laughs> story ideas. I, you know, just thought it would be a good time to revisit that and figured it might be worth at least asking Hank if he would be open to talking about it. He and Willie, prior to Hank's passing, he and Willie Mays were the only living members of this team. So I thought it would be crucial to get one of those, at least one of those two. But yeah, it was pretty amazing. I mean, he said that he learned everything from the Negro Leagues and he like gave some great stories about Willie Mays and how he could never turn off. And, you know, these guys are playing in a 162 game season and then they're going undefeated on this barnstorming team after 162 games during the winter. And beyond that, they're playing in the South. You know, this is a group of like former Negro Leagues players playing in the South in 1955. So from a, it wasn't just impressive of what they were based on what they were doing on the field. It was also, you have to imagine that it was, um, there was a lot of symbolism. There's a greater meaning attached to what they were doing too. So yeah, it was, it was a really interesting story to report. And I feel really lucky that I was able to talk to Hank about it firsthand. And, you know, even at age, I think he was, he was 86. I want to say he was super sharp, remembered that they didn't get paid all their money. Uh, (laughs) He had a lot of (laughs) like, you know, very quick wit. So, so yeah, it's something that I'll, that conversation with him is something I'll cherish for a long time. Yeah. I can imagine well, we can cherish the results of that conversation. And again, I will link to that for everyone to check out. And you can, of course, find Alex's writing about the A's at The Athletic. You can find her on Twitter at ByAlexCoffee. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Okay, let's take a quick break. And we'll be right back with Matt Gelb, also of The Athletic, to talk about the Phillies. Never slept so little. All right, so we are back and we are joined now by Matt Gelb, who covers the Phillies for The Athletic and is currently covering the Phillies. He is speaking to us from one of the radio booths in the currently unnamed Phillies Spring Training Ballpark. Matt, welcome back. Hi, Ben. Hi, Meg. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So there was a lot of change, not as much on the roster this offseason, but certainly in the front office. So if you can briefly bring us up to speed here, give us a little window into the demise of the Clintac regime and then the advent of the Dombrowski regime. What was it that did in the old bosses? Was it just the results on the field or was there a, a process aspect to that that contributed to their ouster? And then why was Dombrowski the choice and why were the Phillies the choice of Dombrowski? It, it was a truly fascinating offseason because it really started <laughs> one way 
went another way and then all of a sudden dave dombrowski emerged sort of as uh the white knight who saved it all and all of a sudden the phillies have again will have a top 10 maybe even a top five payroll uh in all of baseball which is if you would have told me that at the beginning of this offseason after talking to people in the front office i I just i did not foresee this happening it was a really interesting offseason the demise of the clintac slash mcphail regime you know it was it was results oriented i mean for sure like they now have the second longest postseason drought in, in all of baseball, which is somewhat staggering when you think about it. When you think about the money the Phillies have spent uh, in recent years and even spent earlier last decade, only the Mariners have a longer drought of, of not making the postseason. And, and did the Phillies have unfair expectations, you know, coming out of the rebuild and trying to move this thing along and spending money on people like Jake Arrieta and Bryce Harper? I mean, maybe they did. But, you know, they certainly did not come out of the rebuild with enough talent. And I think more than the results, that is something that, you know, really haunted the previous regime. And it's something that ownership, I think, was really disappointed about. I mean, their their farm system, you know, currently ranks, depending on where you look at it. And I, I think Fangraph says it ranked in, in the bottom five. Uh, most places have it ranked in the bottom five. And, you know, they've graduated some players in recent years there, but they, they didn't come out of that rebuild with enough. And I think a lot of that does fall to uh, the Clintac and McPhail regime. And, you know, the Phillies were without a front office, basically, for a good portion of this offseason. And there were questions as, as to whether they were, they were going to have a front office by the time the season started. Andy McPhail in October said, well, you know, it's a pandemic and people aren't looking to uproot during a pandemic. And that, that comment was not met well in Philadelphia where fans were just sort of scratching their head as if like, what is going on here? And this was how the Phillies were actually thinking. They, they weren't sure who they were going to be able to interview slash convince to come join, to run their baseball operations department during a pandemic. And, and I suppose some of that is fair. I mean, there are people who don't want to move or who don't uh, want to take a risk right now, but you know, Ned Rice was the interim GM for uh, quite a bit of the off season. The Phillies were not active. They made a couple waiver claims. They were not spending any money. In fact, they were telling other teams that they might have to shed payroll, that they might have to entertain trades of current players on the roster just to get down because the payroll projections for 2021 were, were quite low, at least what ownership was telling them. There wasn't a budget yet, but they were instructed to not add money at the beginning of the offseason. And the Phillies really wanted to hire Dave Dombrowski, and he told them no twice. Uh, They interviewed a a bunch of people, Josh Burns, Mike Hill. They wanted to interview Thad Levine badly, uh, and they almost did. And he ended up uh, just turning down. He stayed in Minnesota. He didn't want to make the move. They wanted to interview people from the Rays. They they had a lot of people, Indians people. I mean, there were a lot of people they wanted to talk to that they were either denied permission to talk to or those people didn't want to take the Phillies interview. And... You know, Dombrowski became something of a fixation for John Milton, who's the the team's most influential owner. And he tried it again for a third time, basically with the help of uh, some of the other owners and saying that like expansion baseball, which is what Dave Dombrowski had really put his heart into for the last, you know, you know, at least recently since he was let go by the Red Sox, expansion baseball in Nashville wasn't going to be happening anytime soon. And so it was an interesting power move uh, by the Phillies because they... <laughs> basically convinced Dombrowski then to come and take the job here in Philadelphia. And 
maybe the owners knew what they were getting into. Maybe not, because as soon as Dombrowski gets hired, I mean, the natural reaction from people is like, oh, they're going to they're trying. They're going to really push. They're going to trade guys. They're going to spend a lot of money. They didn't trade anyone. There's not a lot to trade from the farm system. So instead, they spent a lot of money. I mean, their payroll is going to end up being at or even above where it was last season. And it was right up against that luxury tax limit last year, which was like $208 million. They're, you know, if they add a couple guys who are in camp on minor league deals, if they add them to the roster, they're going to be at 208 or maybe even a tick higher. So in the end, we are back to where we were. It's a very similar roster. It's a probably more well, well-rounded roster. And, you know, to be quite honest, there are more adults in the room running the team now. The Phillies, you know, had an inexperienced front office paired with an inexperienced manager, Gabe Kapler. And the expectations changed very fast because they started spending money and people wanted to see a winning team because it's been so long. Phillies haven't had a winning record, let alone make the playoffs since 2011. So there is more experience now. There's experience in the manager's chair with Joe Girardi. There's experience in the front office with Dave Dombrowski. And the expectations, again, are quite high. Although, because the division is so good, I feel like people are really talking about the Phillies that much. Yeah, I wanted to to ask about the payroll thing, because as you said, the the impression that that I think we all had in media outside of Philly prior to Dombrowski was that we were going to see the Phillies go into a period of austerity, right? That there was risk that they wouldn't even bring back Real Muto because there wasn't an appetite to spend. And then they hired Dombrowski. And on this podcast, we kind of scratched our heads like this feels like a strange organizational fit given that stated goal and the sort of lack of depth in the farm system. And then they went out and spent a bunch of money. So I'm, I'm curious how much we can really attribute that to Dombrowski specifically and how much of that is just there being, you know, actual people with, you know, solid stated titles in the front office, as opposed to the beginning of the offseason when, as you said, everything was sort of in, in tumult. I think it's all the above, Meg. I, I do. I think Dombrowski comes with a pedigree that can be very convincing to an owner. You know, if, if it's if an owner, you know, an ownership group is saying, uh, well, we want to keep it at this number. But Dave Dombrowski goes to that ownership group and says, well, if we spend two or three extra million here, you know, I really think this is going to make, a, you know, X difference for us. And and he's made that pitch to a lot of different owners over many decades, and it has worked for him. And when you have the rings, the rings matter, and they matter to owners, they matter to the people who are writing the checks. And I think that there is that effect definitely happened here. I also think we know more about the pandemic than we did a few months ago. You know, we know that there will be some fans in the stands this year. We don't know how many, specifically in Philadelphia, but we, we, we know there's going to be fans. They're going to have some sort of revenue from people in the seats. The vaccine rollout has gone faster in some regards, I guess, uh, than, than we expected back in October. I think the club had made some projections out, assuming that uh, worst case scenario, either the vaccine was delayed or there wasn't a vaccine or... There weren't going to be any fans in the stands. And I think that was fueling a lot of their projections. And this was real. I mean, they were really looking at cutting payroll or at the very at the very least not adding payroll to the 2021 team. I think a lot of factors changed that Dombrowski and, you know, knowing more about the pandemic. 
Yeah. So if it is a special skill of Dombrowski's, you know, convincing owners to open up their wallets, then that's a pretty valuable tool to have for a baseball executive. And baseball might be better off if he somehow passed that power on to others with other front offices that haven't had that success. But what about his other strengths and weaknesses at this point in his career? Because he's about as accomplished as a baseball executive can be. He's done it all with various teams. He has built up farm systems and developed talent in past jobs, but it's been a while. And now there is a perception that he is only capable of or interested in sort of coming in and trading a bunch of prospects and signing a bunch of players to big contracts because that's what he did in Boston. But in Philly, as you mentioned, he doesn't really have that wealth of prospects to deal. So that might not work as well. Do you think that he can pivot back to developing? Do you think this is a fit for the current roster? And then, you know, is he he's reputed to to be at least or was in Boston a little less analytically oriented, sabermetrically oriented than the previous front office was there. So is that a concern for him now with the Phillies and how does the elevation of Sam Fold as his GM play into that side of things? So I do think there's some recency bias when it comes to Dombrowski. You know, mm-hmm. when he was hired, media Owens like, oh, hide your prospects. You <laughs> right. know, they're going to trade everybody. You know, and that wasn't the case because, one, as you mentioned, there wasn't really a lot to trade. And they're not in a position where they should be trading their best minor league pieces. I mean, they have to do a better job drafting and developing. And while that was not Dombrowski's forte while in Boston, although he was they did have some decent drafts while he was there. It was something he did from the ground up uh, when he took over in Detroit. And I know this is, we're talking about almost, you know, the stone age that was, you know, the early two thousands. And it, it was the stone age. If, if we're talking about modern baseball, 20 yeah. years ago was stone a long time ago. Yeah. When he did that in, in Montreal too. That's <laughs> he the did. Stone age, yeah. Yes. He had a, he, his senior thesis at Western Michigan was about like the role of the general manager. And it was written, you know, in like the late seventies. And uh, it's a fascinating read now because it's, it almost reads as if it was written from a different sport i don't know so yeah he has two tasks here and and you know the one the first one obviously is to try to win in the major leagues that is evidenced by the money they spent by you know the kind of pieces they have on their roster but as john middleton the owner noted uh, when he demoted matt clintack he said quote the phillies have a hundred year problem and that is that they cannot evaluate talent and it was about as honest and biting of a comment that I think I've ever heard an owner make about his own franchise. He's not wrong. I mean, there are periods in this franchise's history where they have developed and evaluated talent well, but they do have more losses than any franchise in North American sports history. They have a, honestly, a hilarious dark past. I mean, this is a franchise that really has had some terrible stretches. And this is among them. I mean, it is wild that they haven't had a winning season since 2011. So the task is also to try to develop some sort of sustained winner here. I mean, they they are starting to look at, you know, what they're doing in player development and what they're doing in their amateur draft room and what they're doing with their international scouting. I, I do believe Dombrowski's focus is more on the big league side, but I also think that the elevation of fold is someone to balance that out. Is Dave Dombrowski the most analytically inclined head of baseball operations in the sport? No, I mean, no, not even close. He's not. And and he'll be the first to tell you that. Uh, he's aware that that's 
something of a weakness of his, but I think Sam Fold is a really good balance to that. You know, Sam Fold, <laughs> when he played the game, was known as sort of this like grinder, this guy who overachieved. He was the kind of guy that like GMs in the 70s, you know, would have loved because he, he really was a grinder on the field. And now Fold is sort of viewed uh, as one of those like, you know, he's in the bucket of those forward thinking uh, type, you know, former players. And I think Sam is more than that. Sam is someone who, you know, really, I think has, has a unique set of skills. I mean, he could have been a manager, you know, he's interviewed for managerial jobs the last few off seasons. I mean, he interviewed with the Red Sox this this past off season and he could have been a GM. And I think this happened, you know, far quicker than anyone, in, including Sam Vold expected. And in reality, like, is he a GM right now? No. I mean, like he's an assistant GM. Dave Dombrowski is, you know, the, has the GM responsibilities, but it's been interesting to see how they've delegated. And I think Fold has his hands more in the future of their player development and their drafting and their sports science, which is something that he had been working on before this year. He he is the analytical sort of balance to uh, Dombrowski's soothsaying with the owners and his, you know, constructing the major league roster. It's it's an interesting balance because then you have Joe Girardi in the dugout, who I think is a is really like in the middle ground of all that. You know, people remember Binder Joe in New York, and he got derided for that. But when the Phillies hired him, you know, can compare him to Gabe Kapler, and he looked like, you know, he was John McGraw. So that's <laughs> like, I mean, there's it's an interesting, you know, how how we how we form our perceptions based upon you know who's whom someone is replacing. Uh, I think Girardi is like right in the middle of Fold and Dombrowski. So it's a, it's a really interesting power structure uh, in terms of the way that the, the top three people in this organization think right now. One of the things that and I think we should just let's just get the bullpen question out of the way, right? Let's just do that up front so that we can move on to other stuff. I mean, one of the things that this trio is going to be tasked with is improving the situation in the bullpen. That was a place where the team made a number of additions. I mean, last year, I don't know how many Phillies games I watched, but it felt like in every single one, they had a good starting pitching performance. And then the bullpen came in and made a mess of things. They were third in starting pitching war by our metrics and I think third from last uh, when it came to the relievers they were spared that last spot by Seattle <laughs> and <good>? Miami wow <laughs> yeah I'm impressed that's amazing yes. they were not last yeah <laughs> Seattle and Miami did a, a terrible job and Miami made the postseason so you know baseball's weird but maybe you can you can walk our listeners through the the additions that they have made um this offseason and then you know Talk about some of the guys who they might be hoping will will have something of a bounce back or a step forward in terms of their their performance who are already on the roster because surely it can't be as bad as last year. <laughs> <laughs> when you want to fix your bullpen, you bring in Dave Brembrowski. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yes, I can't I can't tell you how many times I heard that from somebody in the sport this off season yeah. getting text messages. Oh well, good thing Dave Dombrowski is great at fixing bullpens, and no, it is not his strength. And no, I don't think the Phillies bullpen is going to be a strength this year. It's not. But it's not going to be historically bad. I mean, I guess like that should be the marketing slogan for the Phillies this year. Hey, we're not historically bad. Well, like it's going to be I think it's going to be a bad bullpen. But if it's like the 20th or 21st ranked bullpen in the league, that is a huge upgrade for them. And like if they would have had the 20th or 21st bullpen in the league last year, they would have made the playoffs and Maybe they would have won a series. I don't know. I mean, Meg, like you said, baseball was really weird last year. So they got Archie Bradley. They signed him for $6 million. 
I think he's, I think he's going to get a lot of save opportunities. I think honestly, he might be the closer. You know, there's a debate whether Hector Neris or Archie Bradley will be the closer. Neris has done it. Joe Girardi has said that he wants more defined roles in 2021. He might not get that, you know, out of the gate, but I think he's hoping that guys pitch their way into defined roles, you know, by the summertime. And, And Girardi, isn't necessarily, you know, like a guy who's always looking for roles. I mean, he in the past has has done different things with his bullpens, but for him to say that out front, I, I think he believes that this bullpen would benefit from defined roles. They've added some guys on minor league deals, uh, some veteran types, and this is this is not something that they've had success with in the previous regime. In fact, you know, a lot of times their roster building was was so top heavy that you know spots. 18 through 25 on the roster really were weak. And we're talking about the bench and the middle of the bullpen. And they were often exposed. And the Phillies often went with youth for those spots. And it's hard to be a middle reliever or a uh, bench player if you are young, if you're just breaking into the big leagues. And they struggled to find consistency from those positions on the roster. So Dombrowski has attacked it with just quantity. And and this was how the Phillies did it last year, except the quantity approach they were going for was like Bud Norris, Drew Storen, Anthony Swarzak, Francisco Liriano, who ended up opting out, not even making the team, Reggie McLean, Trevor Kelly, Dale East Guerra, Robert Stock. I'm guessing if any Phillies fan is listening, they're kind of shuddering at hearing some of those names because, (laughs) I mean, some of those guys, you know, were truly nightmarish. Uh, and then they had to go out and make really what was a lopsided trade to try to fix it midseason to go get Brandon Workman and Heath Embry and gave up two, you know, decent rotation pieces. I mean, depending on what Nick Pavetta turns into and then Connor Siebold, who I think is going to be, you know, probably a number five starter in the big leagues. The Phillies got totally fleeced in that trade, but it was a trade they had to make at the time. It just turned out to be maybe one of the worst trades you could ever imagine because Workman and Hembry were so bad. Brandon Kinsler and Tony Watson, they came in here on minor league deals, veteran types. Kinsler was a closer last year for the Marlins. His peripherals were not good. Uh, he's, he's, you know, probably past his prime as is Tony Watson, but they're going to they will probably ask those guys to be middle relievers. They're not going to ask Kinsler to be pitching in the ninth inning, but if they're asking Kinsler to take the sixth or the seventh and Watson to come in, maybe in the seventh as uh, as as a lefty specialist, I think uh, that's an upgrade for them. They went out and traded for Jose Alvarado, and you know, whenever the Rays sour on a pitcher, you kind of wonder why they might be doing that. In this case, the Phillies believed it was purely a financial decision. Uh, Alvarado was arbitration eligible. He ended up making he's going to make a million dollars in 2021, which is not a lot of money for the Phillies, but apparently uh, a decent amount of money for the Rays. So the Phillies were willing to take that bet. Uh, they they took some dart throws, like they traded uh, a draft pick for Sam Coonrod, uh, who throws hard and has questionable views about the world. You know, he might be a guy who pitches in the middle innings for them. He's also got minor league options. I mean, they're really, they added velocity, which is such a novel idea, right? But the Phillies did not have velocity in their bullpen last year, and it really showed when they needed strikeouts, they could not get strikeouts. A guy like Connor Brogdon, uh, he was a 10th round pick from Lewis and Clark State College. Uh, he signed for $5,000. He was throwing 99 miles an hour at the end of the season last year. If he's going to be at 97, 99 again uh, in 2021, then he could be a, a big time setup guy for them. So he's a guy to watch. 
Yeah, and the bullpen war figure that Meg cited earlier, that's Fangraph's war, so that's FIP-based, which means it's defense-independent. And when you're talking about the Phillies, and especially the 2020 Phillies, defense independence makes a pretty big difference. Because, Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's still valid if we're talking about the bullpen performance, but when you're talking about the Phillies' performance, you do have to account for the players in the field. And Yeah, I couldn't last... Uh, they ended up with the highest batting average on balls in play I, I wrote about this and i'm not quite sure how to interpret it yeah. since like the 1899 cleveland spiders yeah i saw joshian point that out too they had the the worst defensive efficiency ever basically certainly in modern baseball and you know small sample but uh still you look at that team and you sort of understand it so that has been a recurring issue for the Phillies with this current group, but how acute an issue will that be this year? Have they taken any steps to try to rectify that? Because you can really just bleed runs and it might not be as obvious when it's on defense, but those runs still count. No, they have taken no steps to address that. <laughs> and it is, it, it is, in my opinion, going to be the team's biggest weakness. They're both not just their infield defense, their outfield defense last year was horrendous. I mean, and Bryce Harper was was compromised in right field. The final month of the season, his back was a major problem, and you could see it in the field the most. Uh, but the, the players they were using in center field, Scott Kingery, Adam Hazley, Roman Quinn, not good. It, it was a really bad look defensively in center field. Andrew McCutcheon was not moving well in left field. I mean, they gave up so many extra bases based on their outfield defense. They really did. I mean, it, I, I don't know how they're able to quantify it. I don't know if there is a way. I mean, somebody who was charting it probably was able to do it the best. They gave up a ton of extra bases just from their outfield defense. And the infield defense is going to be the same as it was last year. In fact, it, it might be worse. I mean, they're all a year older. They re-signed Didi Gregorius. He's going to short. You know, he he's average to slightly below average, depending on what you want to look at. I thought Gene Segura was better. Uh, moving off a shortstop and playing, I thought he played a really solid second base. He's not, doesn't have the most range. Uh, but on the corners, Reese Hoskins, not, I don't think he's ever going to be an average defender. And third base, uh, <laughs> you know, Alec Bohm was tremendous at the plate. He, his first impression as a rookie at the plate was incredible. An all-fields approach, power to all-fields, a really refined two-strike approach, the kind of stuff that you don't see from hitters his age. Uh, but third base was was a challenge at times for him, and he is a big dude, and he is most likely not going to stick at third base for the duration of his career. And I think you know his defense there is is going to be an issue. And now they're saying they're going to try to attack it this off-season with everybody, you know, trying to be more agile, trying to do drills that increase range, trying to be more prepared, you know, pre-pitch setup, et cetera. You know, at some point though, there are physical limitations. And, and and I think the Phillies are going to face that with their defense, specifically in the infield. It's going to be a huge weakness, especially because their pitching staff was was very ground ball heavy last year. Uh, now Jake Garriott is gone. Uh, he, he did get a lot of those ground balls last year, but it's still a ground ball heavy staff. And I think they're well aware that their defense is going to be an issue. They are going to have to score a lot of runs. It feels uh, rude to sort of linger on Kingry because, you know, you don't want to ask the question of what went wrong for him last year because I think the answer is pretty much everything. But can you talk a little bit about Kingry and exactly how this 
sort of the sky fell apart and what we might hopefully expect to be better going into 2021 because, you know, as you noted, like the defense not outstanding and the approach at the plate just seemed to completely fall apart. He was swinging at everything. He notched a 37 WRC plus. So what is the current state of Scott Kingry and what might we expect from him this year? I think his current state is clarity. He has clarity regarding his body. He has clarity regarding how he lost his way in terms of approach. I mean, this was a guy, remember, they gave him $26 million before he ever stepped foot on a on a field for a big league game. Uh, it was a record contract. And they had a lot of expectations for this guy. And, and what they loved about him was his athleticism, you know, his speed, the way he played the game. And he very much got away from that. I, I think he's had some questionable voices in his head in terms of, you know, how to approach things at the plate. I think he started selling out for power and a lot of guys have had success doing that and it's popular and it's efficient. I mean, it is popular and efficient for a reason. I mean, it works. It doesn't work for everyone though. And I think we've come to understand that, that, you know, the, the lift approach isn't for everyone. And I don't think it was for Scott Kingery. Now, if you want to talk about his 2020 season, you know, I'm not really sure where to begin. I just recently wrote about him and, and there was so much wrong. I mean, he, he got sick, he had COVID, and he, he had a, a pretty strong bout of it. I mean, he, he had trouble with it for the duration of the season. He had shortness of breath. He had some back problems, which he's not sure if they're related, but there are COVID patients who have talked about you know having back problems because they can't take deep breaths because it, they have shorter breaths and it, it affects somehow affects their back. And then he developed sh- problems in both of his shoulders. I mean, he was severely compromised from a physical state and also from a mental state. He was in his own head. He had gotten away from, you know, his nickname when he came was coming up in the minors was Scotty Jetpacks. And the guy we saw last year was, was not showing any sort of quick twitch mobility, any sort of athleticism at all. He was just trying to drive the ball, trying to just try to get above water. And he was so far underwater from the very start that he had to just completely flush last season. Now, the Phillies would love if he won the center field job this spring. Center field is the only spot on this uh, in this lineup that is undecided at this point. It's essentially a competition between Kingery and Adam Hazley and Roman Quinn. And they would love for Kingery to be that guy in center field. And center field is a, is a spot where he can, you know, flash his athleticism. And he, you know, he admitted, you know, this spring that, uh, he needs to get back to that approach that was successful for him in the minors. He needs to hit to all fields. He needs to drive the ball, not necessarily looking to hit a home run. And he admitted that at times when he was playing corner positions and the Phillies have moved him around a lot, he was trying to hit home runs. And I, and I suppose that's like the blessing and the curse of versatility. I mean, Kingery can play a lot of different positions. And so the Phillies wanted to use that to their advantage and they moved him all around the field. But Kingery has been pretty outspoken in saying that like, that is not helpful for him. He would prefer to be at one spot so he can focus on that and focus on other parts of his game. And, you know, not everyone can be Ben Zobrist and we use him as the model, you know, for someone who can move around and be successful both in the field and at the plate. And the Phillies saw Kingery as somebody who could do that. It is harder to do. Uh, then I think they they realized. 
wanted to ask about two talented 24-year-olds who were on the opposite extremes of the rookie season (laughs) spectrum. One is Spencer Howard, who was greeted rudely in his six starts for the Phillies last season. The other is Alec Bohm, whom you mentioned earlier, and he was about as good as he could be. And that's always dangerous in that maybe it can raise expectations and you see someone be great over a fraction of a rookie season and you expect them to continue to be that great. And it's tough to do that unless you're Fernando Tatis and it turns out you're actually even better than that <laughs> the next season. <laughs> but how good can Bohm be and how much better can Howard be and, and will he play, do you think, a prominent part on this staff? Howard's a tough one because he just hasn't pitched. He hasn't pitched enough, and, and he will be on an innings limit in 2021. They don't know what the number is, but it's hard to imagine him getting more than 100 innings in the big leagues this year. They would love to have to you know, come up against that limit, though. I mean, they want Spencer Howard to force their hand. You know, Right now, he's in camp, and he is competing for a job in the rotation, and that there's two spots essentially up for grabs. It's the four and five spot, and they have Matt Moore and Chase Anderson, who they signed to guaranteed deals this offseason. And then they have Vince Velasquez, who is still here, and uh, they have Spencer Howard. And I I don't think Howard is going to win a job this spring because they have guaranteed money to Moore and Anderson, and Velasquez is making $4 million this year. So there's such a wide range of outcomes for Howard this season. He could be an effective starter for them and get close to that 100 innings. He could be somebody who pitches in the bullpen for them in a multi-inning role, sort of a fireman, Josh Hader type, maybe not necessarily as a closer. Uh, He could have more shoulder problems. I mean, he has had shoulder problems in each of the last two seasons. His season last year ended with shoulder problems. He believes that he's figured it out. He looked at his declining fastball velocity last year because it was – Inning by inning, it just kept going down and down, and and he became much more hittable second and third time through the order. He just doesn't think he was at the right weight. He didn't have the right strength. He has dedicated himself to improving his body this offseason. But there are real questions about you know his future role and his durability. So it wasn't a good first impression. That doesn't mean that it won't be better in 2021. But there are some real questions there. And as for Bohm, you're right, Ben. I mean, he was he was really good. I mean, he had huge hits for them. I mean, I'm not, you know, we're not just talking about, you know, he, you know, you can look at the stat line and you can, you know, see what you see. And it was really encouraging for a rookie. He was a guy who in, you know, in this, whatever you, if it, it was sort of a postseason race for the eighth seed in the National League. It was kind of a weird one, but he came up with big at bats for them, patient at bats, you know, really impressive hits to the opposite field in big moments. He had this something about him that uh, you don't see in young hitters. And I know that I'm, I'm trying to quantify the inquantifiable, but he was really impressive offensively. They are trying to, to keep him at third base. I, I don't think it's going to work uh, long-term, but I think they're willing to sacrifice some defense to keep his bat in the lineup. And absent a DH, Bohm's got to play third base because Reese Hoskins is at first base and Reese Hoskins you know, is one of their better middle of the order hitters. So I think Bohm can hit in a lot of different spots in the lineup. He does a lot of different things for them. They would love for him to hit for more power. You know, a big emphasis with him has been pull side power because it, it isn't necessarily his strength. And when you look at him, he's a big dude. He plays third base. You're assuming that he is a guy who who can hit hit a lot of home runs to the pull side, and he isn't necessarily that. I don't know if I would I would change him. 
I really don't. I mean, I don't know that he needs to have a ton of pull side power. And I know there are probably a lot of people who are cringing as I say that, but uh, the profile was pretty good last year. I want to switch it up a little bit now and talk about Aaron Nola. So Nola had a better year in 2020 than his 2019 Still was not quite where he was in his excellent 2018, but he struck out more guys and his peripheral numbers lined up more closely with what he did in 18 when he was good for five and a half wins by Fangraph's War. I know that a part of that seems to have been that he was throwing his change up a lot more last year than he had the year before. So let's talk about the the sort of change in his pitch mix and repertoire that we saw in 2020 and what your expectations are for him in 2021. I think it was as simple as this, Meg. He was ahead in the count more. He threw strike one more. He was getting strike two on one-one counts more often. This is something that he struggled with in 2019. It led to some really prolonged at-bats. It led to shorter outings. It led to him getting into to bad counts, and, and he was really hit hard in those bad counts. But last season, you saw a guy who was able to attack the zone better He's really, he's got really impressive stuff, and and it's amazing the evolution of Nola because when he was drafted, he was not he was viewed as sort of the safe pick, a mid rotation guy, you know, could maybe be a, a two if he, if everything goes right. And you know, is he ever going to be as good as he was in that 2018 season? Probably not. I mean, that was a really good season. It was it was a good season on a bad team. He he was incredible that year. And it's tough when you when you establish those sort of expectations that early in your career. I still think the overall picture of Aaron Nola is one of a really productive pitcher. Is he a one? Maybe not. Is he a two? Most definitely. And it just depends on your definition of you know what an ace is. And I don't want to get into that now, but I I, I do think he uh, he was so much more efficient last year. And now there are questions about you know how he's finished seasons. You know, his last few starts last year were not good. And the same thing happened in September of 2019. And the same thing happened in September of 2018. If you go back and look, you know, he has not ended the season as well. And if you look at his workload, it's pretty big. Uh, It's among, I think, the top five in the sport since the start of the 2018 season. He's thrown a lot of innings. So there are questions about how he can hold up over the course of a season. And every team right now is trying to figure out how are we going to get our best starters uh, out there for 30-ish starts in 2021 after, you know, they only made 10 or so uh, in 2020. So Nola is a guy who he said he started throwing a little more, a little earlier than he normally would. He's trying to build up some strength. He's trying to prepare himself for a larger workload after a smaller one last year. I'm willing to bet on Aaron Nola. Uh, I, I think he's a really impressive dude. This is not the most pressing question for the Phillies, but as someone who is interested in seeing Jeff Mathis's unique, <laughs> incredible career continue, barring JT Realmuto breaking another finger, is there any way Mathis makes this team? I don't think so, Ben, but I actually, I recently talked to Mathis and I'm going to be writing about him. So cool. <laughs> I am also fascinated by Jeff Mathis and uh, <laughs> it's pretty cool. I mean, I think you know, he was around for, for, for when Real Muto first came up. He was he was on the Marlins in the early days of Real Muto's career and became something of a mentor to JT in, in his first two full seasons uh, in the majors. And it's it's kind of neat to see him come full circle. Um, but, you know, if Real Muto is out just for maybe a week or two to start the season and Andrew Knapp will be uh, the catcher, and I doubt the Phillies would make like a, make a 40-man roster move to get Jeff Mathis on if it's just for like a week or 10 days. 
So I don't think he's going to make the team, but I think he has, uh, I think he has different thoughts on his mind about, you know, perhaps what's going to happen to him, you know, after his career is over, although maybe it never ends. <laughs> so we'll ask you to close with a prediction for this team's win total, but just to sort of segue into that bigger picture question, the Phillies have kind of become known as the team that tore down or, or tanked and it didn't work. <laughs> you know, they they have that reputation now that was the subject of Sam's last article for ESPN. So can they shed that still? I mean, finishing over 500 for once would be a start. And, you know, they do have Bryce Harper for years to come and Real Muto for years now. But, you know, do they have what it takes given that they're basically running back the roster from last year with some tinkering here and there, you know, can they get good enough to win with this core and without a a great infusion of high ceiling prospects coming in sometime soon? And, you know, is Dombrowski prepared to stick it out at this point in his career and, and build something from scratch again? So even if they were to win this year, I don't think they would shed that label of being that sort of tank slash rebuild that failed. Because if they do win this year, it's not really going to be because, you know, of of all these, you know, homegrown pieces that they got out of that rebuild. It's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be because of money they spent and, you know, a few trades they made. I mean, they got Real Muto by trading some, you know, some younger pieces. But I think it, if the narrative will be if they do finally push through and make the playoffs this year, it'll be because of, you know, Dombrowski making some finer touches to the roster and adding depth and, and adding, you know, making it more well-rounded. Do they have enough? Uh, I, I don't think so. I also think this team is better. I do. I do think it's a better team than it was last year. And the team last year was probably a postseason caliber team if it was not for the bullpen. It was. I mean, you look at the picture of it, you know, their starting rotation was really good. Their offense scored. It was a deep lineup. I do think this this was a playoff team last year in a different situation. I also think the division is better this year. The Braves won the division last year in a weird season, and they lost like their entire rotation. And now their rotation is back. So it is, it is a tougher division, and there are fewer playoff spots. We think, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I think expanded playoffs would be met you know, would be well received within the Phillies organization. They would love the idea of seven or eight teams making the playoffs again in the National League. Yeah. Because absent that, uh, you figure that one of the wild cards is going to come out of the West. We assume stranger things have happened. And I I think it's a real uphill climb for them. They're going to need their stars to be great. They're going to need Nola and Zach Wheeler and Zach Eflin to be really, really good. Uh, and they were that last year. They need them to do that again. They need health. Uh, they didn't have great health last year. Everybody's a year older. It's unrealistic to expect better health. But uh, I mean, what Vegas says them most places have them somewhere around like 81, right? Something like that, because that's like the you know quintessential Phillies win total <laughs> number, right? Because they are like the epitome of a 500 team. I'm gonna take the over on the win total, but I don't have them making the playoffs. Give me 85 wins.
Yeah, they could use expanded playoffs. They could also use Universal DH about as much as anyone. They could use Universal DH in that, like, universally everyone just DHs and no one plays defense at all. That would really benefit the Phillies <laughs> if they could somehow work that out. Just bring in defensive specialists for every position and uh, everyone else gets to hit full time. <laughs> then Jeff Mathis the is everywhere. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. Well, you can find Matt on Twitter at Matt Gelb, G E L B. You can find him writing regularly at The Athletic Philadelphia. Thank you, as always, Matt. Thank you. Let's talk to you guys soon. That'll do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Benji Mailings, Sam Dinning, Tom Hawk, Jennifer Mattis, and Paul Baker. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. Rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We'll be back with one more episode this week, which will also be a team preview pod. We'll be talking about the Cubs and Nationals next time, so we'll talk to you then. You gotta play tough, my